Well, thank you for showing grace to me with the slides. I knew we could figure it out by the time we got through it. Thank you for those who were playing the instruments. They stayed with it. I was ready to throw in the towel, but you persevered, the team persevered, and I was instructed, so thank you. Again, once again, we gather our time now. We come out of Easter celebrating the resurrection, particularly that day of Easter, but each and every Lord's Day as we celebrate the resurrection yet again right now. We're here gathered in his name. But now we rejoin our study to the life and legacy of Abraham. As we sketched a rough dating record, you recall we've worked on dating the material within the text. So we're following the events within the text and we're looking from day one when God created from the very first day and then we're following the genealogies, right? So then you have dating throughout the record of the biblical text and we've arrived through the genealogical records with plus or minus, but again, the assumption is that we're given in the genealogical records the substantive information we need to be able to move dates along within the biblical text. That's the assumption. Now again, there could be some assumptions elsewhere. Well, maybe there's generations missing, and maybe there's time gaps, maybe there's... Maybe. Uh, but again, I'm putting forward uh, that in good faith, we have a record that's required here, and we're able to make good judgments based upon it. That means from day one, as we've tracked through the genealogical record, we arrive now this morning at the birth of our particular individual that we're studying, which is the birth of Abram. And if we could do so, then we would say within the biblical text, the birth of Abraham occurred uh, in the early 2000s of history. The dating for that is 2000 AD. Some get more particular and precise to say Abram was born here by his house, in the household of Terah uh, by the year 2008. But if I just gave to you, consider for a moment, human history up to Abram being 2,000 years. Now remember, we arrive at Abram by traveling through the genealogical record of Shem. And you remember that in the biblical text as you look back over our study that we've covered, chapter 10, uh, where it leads to Shem's generations. By the time we get to chapter 11, you see as it leads to Terah this morning, we're once again revisiting who? Shem's generation or Shem's genealogical record. Why is there a repeat? If we have the genealogical record of Shem's descendants in chapter 10, why then are we told once again about the genealogical record of Shem's descendants in chapter 11? What's the point of doubling up on the genealogical record? Well, you recall, chapter 11, as it leads to Abram through Terah, expelled the Joktonites. Why is that significant? So, if you were to read Shem's genealogical information in Genesis 10, you find Joktan there. And then you move into the beginning of 11 and you find what? The Tower of Babel. By the time you go back now, after Babel, back to Shem's genealogical record, guess who's missing? The Joktonites. Of course, the question to the careful reader is why? Why are they not here included in the same genealogical information? The reason is because of what happens in chapter 11 at the very beginning of the text. You recall, the Joktonites are those who led the rebellion at Babel. 
These are they who traveled eastward. And you can read it down through the end of 10 and then it transitions into the beginning of 11. They were they who traveled eastward. They attempted to forge the building of the tower at Babel. They're rebellious individuals as a family. When you look at the motivations for the tower and then you see their exclusion after the tower's event, you realize the rebellion was that they sought to prove their own power, sought to prove their own glory, and how they can be independent from their creator. The Joktonites would have known better because again, they followed the godly line of Shem. They made a conscientious decision to rebel against the creator and seek to create the tower. The people of the tower are those who explicitly state they wish to establish a name for themselves. You see, they would rather be those who establish their own name than have a name bestowed. This is critical in your understanding of Abram because by the time you get to Genesis 12, and then look, if you will, if you're there in the text, you just notice this is directly what God reinstates upon Abram. Verse 2, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. And what will he do? But make, their name great, make his name great. I won't be able to keep my Bible open. He promises to make Abram's name great which is exactly the response to those at the Tower of Babel who sought to make their own name great. God is establishing a godly lineage, and he is going to begin in the house of Terah with a young man named Abram. Now, as we push forward, as we're introduced this morning to Abram, and then we push forward from the biblical record, beginning in Genesis 11, all the way to the very last of the books of Revelation, the inheritance of the godly, which includes you right now in this age. What is the mark of your life? It will be experienced and witnessed in the biblical text as well through your life in this age. That your inheritance is marked as one who shares the faith of Abraham. You know that. We studied the book of Galatians for a good long season of time. And we've rehearsed it since we began our study in the book of Genesis, looking at Abraham already. And you recall, what is quintessential about Abram? What do we know about Abram, is, who is the father of us all? But we know him to be a man of great faith. But where our story begins is not with Abram, the man of faith matured, but where we begin is a profile of Abraham and from where his faith came. Not only where faith comes from. Have you ever asked yourself that? Why are there some who believe and some who, quite frankly, do not? Some within a family unit, which particularly is grievous at times. Some embrace the faith and some do not. In the nature of it, have you examined within your own life, what causes me to believe? What is the causative factor? 
that made my heart spring forward. Abram is a profile of this. And we'll see it here this morning just briefly as we see from whence does faith arise. You see, before Abram is known throughout the rest of the text as uh, our father in the faith, as the man of faith, Abram's faith, just like your own, must first be provided. And then, beloved, as you know this throughout the course of your life, our faith must be painstakingly developed across our years of experience. Faith is at once birth in the heart, but it is over the period of our life wherein it is matured. One author speaks of Abram's life this way as we join in the text just shortly here in a moment. He speaks of it this way. The narrative is a study of Abraham in the school of faith. Again, you're you're uniting yourself to this within the biblical text as an individual Christian, one who states the Catholic faith this morning, indeed you believe. So now you're looking at its origins, its origin story in the life of Abraham. Because again, Abraham's not unique altogether from humanity. He is a man like us. He shares a common faith. So it is with Abraham, so it is with you. The narrative is a study of Abraham in the school of faith. We witness Abram's development through failures and success altogether Abram, like us, begins in elementary school. The question, if we stayed with the metaphor of school of faith, the question that I'm asking for your sake and I'm asking you to consider with me is what is faith's first lesson? What is faith's first lesson? If it is that we, like Abram, live in the school of faith, and if each one of us, as we consider faith and its fruits, its origins, and to explore what it means to believe, if Abram begins in elementary, so also we, what is faith's first lesson? The answer to that, as I would provide to you, as we will see here momentarily through a couple introductory pieces from the text, is faith's first lesson is that faith is not and cannot be a work. I can't emphasize to you, beloved, Christ's people gathered on the Lord's day to sing in his honor, to pray in his name, 
I had to sit under the hearing of his word. I cannot encourage you enough of how significant and important it is that you, the people of Christ's pasture, grasp that faith is not and cannot be a work. You see, faith, whether we're talking about Abram's or ours, is not a first work among others which follow. Sometimes we can think again, and, and, and sometimes we can feel that that's splitting hairs. But we must recall, beloved, faith doesn't save you. Christ saves you. Faith is the means whereby you come to rest upon and receive all that he is. We might in short say, I was saved by faith. Fair. But we must be careful. Because your faith is far less sturdy and sure than Christ, who is the anchor of that faith. You will feel this over the course of your lifetime. We will study Abram and see he felt the same. You will see him lie when he shouldn't. If you pivot back in those moments of weakness and failure, to faith as salvation, you will doubt that very gift. What is saving is faith's object, who is Christ the Lord. Lest we think faith is at first a work among other works that follow, for again, beloved, I can't urge you enough as we peer into the life of Abram. Faith is not something you or I, individual human beings, faith is not something we can manufacture within ourselves. On the contrary, faith is a gift bestowed. Think first and foremost of that. This is why the Heidelberg Catechism and all of Reformed theology keeps it in these categories of a simplicity of the Christian experience. Guilt. Grace. And gratitude. This is the Christian experience. For what could a response be unto God for birthing faith in the heart but gratitude displayed in an obedient life? 
Again, I wish to prove to you from the biblical text, but as I introduce, faith is a gift bestowed by the Spirit of God through which we are moved unto Christ to receive all that He is and to rest solely upon Him for all that we need. There is but one gospel, one good news announcement from Genesis to Revelation. The same means whereby Abram is saved and delivered from darkness is the same means whereby you are or can be today delivered from darkness. It was read for you just a couple of moments ago in the scripture reading of our service. That public means of grace of just reading the biblical text to the people of God gathered to nourish the soul and refresh the mind. I wish to rehearse it just momentarily with you again. For Paul describes that singular gospel in both testaments, whether it's the life of Abram or it's the life of Adam Thomas or the life of his people here individually in your own name. Paul describes the working of the Spirit of God in Ephesians 2. As was read for you, 1 through 10, I simply cite verses 8 and 9. You know them very well. If you don't, you've heard them preached at least probably once. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Do, do you see what he says there? So, so you think of Abram. We're about to meet Abram. Guess where? In Ur, in the land of the Chaldeans. You know what that means. I'll fill in some data just for a short moment, but you realize it becomes known as Babylon, the great enemy of God's people. That's where we find Abram in Ur. Well, how did he move from Ur to Haran and then from Haran to Canaan to sojourn in the land? How does he become the father of us all? Those who rest upon Christ for salvation. How did this occur in Abram's life? By grace. Paul is clear. It's not new to us. It's that same gospel from testament to testament, covenant to covenant. For by grace, you have been saved. How do I appropriate that grace? How so? He says, through faith. Then he goes on to explain it a little clearer of which you're familiar. And this this, 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 this operative grace through faith that saved you is not of your own doing. That's why I say to you, if we were to ask what is faith's first lesson, it is that faith is not and cannot be a work. For this is not your own doing. 
then from whence did it come if it's not my own doing? How did I lay hold of this grace through the operations of faith? Paul couldn't be clearer. It is a gift of God. He birthed it. He gave it. Paul makes clear in Romans 10 the means most typical of how you came to have it. It was through the preaching of the word. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing what? The word of God. You see, and I add, it not only is it not a work, I add, and it cannot be a work, uh, because God has said in the rest of the text, Paul concludes, it, it cannot and it is not a result of working. You, you, you see, you can't just drum it up. Because that might lead to this boasting, which is forbidden. It is the gift of God, not a result of working so that no one may boast. That's why we say it, it goes in the Christian experience, goes from guilt, where God finds you, grace bestowed where he enlivens and births you in faith and gratitude from where you go from here. Lest we be found boasting as though we're somehow superior to those who have not received. I say all that and I will not keep you much longer but I say all of that so that we can see it at the very outset of Abram's story. We are witness to the fact of God's grace as the foundation for everything that transpires in Abram's life. Abram does not become the man of faith on his own. You did not become a Christian on your own. It is a gift of God lest you be found boasting. How do we see that? Join with me in the text just for a couple of moments. You'll notice where we join in the year somewhere in the early 2000s of human history, if we follow the genealogical record, verse 26, when Terah had, learned, uh, had lived 70 years, so he's 70 at this point, he fathers Abram. Abram has two brothers that we're introduced to that will not amount to a lot in our story, but we're just looking at Abram's family lineage. Uh, Abram is now on to the scene in verse 26, Nahor and Haran. Now, these are the generations of Terah. The reason why it starts yet again to be a clear presentation of just the genealogical record of Terah is because our main character will emerge now, who is Abram. So Terah is kind of like added in the Shem's descendants, and we see that Abram came from this godly line, but Terah now stands out in his own genealogical record because Terah is going to fade to black. And Abram is going to emerge into the white. These are generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. 
And Haran fathered Lot. Okay, so we catch up verse 28. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah. This is what I want you to key in on. In the land of his kindred. In Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. So the two remaining brothers take wives. The name of Abram's wife is Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife is Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Again, that will fade to black. What emerges in the writer, Moses, brings us back up to his verse 30. Now, Sarai was barren. Just in case we don't grasp the gravity of the situation for Abram married to Sarai, it's added yet again. She had no child. Now again, I mentioned to you that the foundation of which we are witnesses within the biblical text as the story is told, the foundation to Abram's entire life, and yours as well, is one of grace. And is the foundation for everything that transpires from its origins all the way to where Abram dies and goes to glory. But here in this particular text are two significant features I want you to notice as we just look for a brief moment. Number one, two significant features of this text that show us the grace that is operative in Abram's life. Number one, his family resides in Ur. Ur is southern Mesopotamia. You could follow it again if you wished, if you went back to the tower event and go back to chapter 10 and the nations are dispersed. Abram's family settles in Ur, the land of the Babylonians later to become, that is here, the land of the Chaldeans. Why is this so important that we notice? Why are we told? Where God finds Abram is in Ur. The implication to the fact of his family sitting under Terah's leadership, living in the land of Ur, that is southern Mesopotamia, the land of the Chaldeans, is that Terah has led his family into worshiping false gods. You think, wow, I don't see that particularly here. Let me rehearse for you. You don't need to turn there. I'll simply cite it for you. Joshua, in reminding the people of God as they go forward, he reminds them to avoid certain pitfalls that will come, to remember their redemptive history of from where they've come already. He reminds us of the story of what it meant for Abram to be taken from the land of Ur, Terah's house in southern Mesopotamia. What is the implication here? Joshua 24, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and he summoned the elders, the heads, and the judges, the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. 
Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Remember, this is God speaking to Israel. As Joshua addresses him, saying, thus says the Lord God. Verse 3 of this chapter, Joshua 24, is the shift of which I'm drawing your attention to here in Genesis 11. This is how the Lord speaks of how that history changed. And beloved, it is how each and every one of you who rest on Christ at this moment, how your history changed. Verse 3. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and I led him through all the land of Canaan and I made his offspring many. You see, why is it so significant that we grasp that somewhere along the line Terah, though coming from Shen's godly lineage, had somehow lost his own way. And his children are being raised in Ur, whereby they are pursuing false gods. Because I wish to encourage you as you think about your own life in union to Christ, from where did I come? Why was faith bestowed? From where did it come into my life that I might lay hold of and rest upon Jesus Christ as my Savior? Or today, how can I become a Christian? How can I flee to Christ? I wish to encourage you to look upon the life of Abram as Joshua well reminds us that God is not bound, beloved, by your family history. God is not bound and hampered by your upbringing that you have a hard time getting over. God is not driven away by your disappointments. And he is not given up on you because of your past. When we hear the story of Abram and Ur, Worshipping false gods in the house of Terah, beyond the river. And we hear that, but I took him from beyond the river. And I brought him into Canaan. And I changed him and made him the father of many nations. We read a story of gospel grace. For whether it is in Abram or in you or in your hopes for your friends and your loved ones, God is absolutely free. He is absolutely sovereign. He is absolutely full of grace, mercy, and at root, God is good. He can find you anywhere. He can take you out of anything. 
bringing you, as he did with Abram, unto himself and make you a new creation in Christ Jesus. He is the God, beloved, that can call into the darkness and create light. There is here in Abram's life gospel hope. One author makes this comment regarding Terah as we follow his genealogy, which is genealogy, the purpose of his genealogy is to give birth to Abram. What of Terah? One author makes this comment, he says, quote, after historical statements of Terah's existence, right, so, so he was uh, in the family lineage of Shem, he gave birth to Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and then the next thing that we know about uh, uh, Terah uh, is, is that he dies uh, when he was 205 years old, and he died in Haran in verse 32. After historical statements of Terah's existence, he will not be mentioned again. For he does not share Abraham's faith. A story of gospel hope. Secondly, I said there were two things. This is my last one. Two things we need to consider at the outset of the structure of the story that help us read it better as we go forward as a church. The second is the piece in verse 30. Abram's wife Sarai is barren. It would be impossible for you as a reader to overstate this fact. Again, as we may read it quite curtly and quickly through the genealogical records it sets up, we may simply think this is a simple, brute fact. It's a fact being reported. You know her name. Oh, you should also just know, by the way, she's barren. No, 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 no. It is far, 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 far more than a simple fact of the story. It is in many ways, if we are to rightly understand the story of Abram, if we are rightly to understand our own story and the story of redemption, it is the story of Abraham. One author makes this statement about it, particularly here in Sarai's spot. But I'll highlight for you in close just a couple more where barrenness is a theme in Scripture. Have you thought of that? Have you paused and thought, my goodness, there's a lot of barren women in Scripture? One author makes the comment here about Sarai is he says, quote, Sarai's barrenness is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. There is here no human power 
to invent a future. That's where Abram begins. On the wrong side of Euphrates, in a house that worships false gods, with a wife who, the text says, is barren. But as I spoke to you before, so I say again, it is the story, because it's a story of gospel hope, a story of God's power, that he is not bound by Abram's family upbringing or his geographical location or his idea of worshiping false gods to set him free by sovereign grace. And he is not bound by the flesh wherein he cannot uproot, lay hold, bless, and bring about. You think of barrenness and the birth of promise. I just wish to encourage you as we close. There is here just in simple facts, rich, rich gospel texture that is true of Abram and Sarai and is true of you and I. Sarah was barren to Abram. Rebecca was barren to Isaac. Rachel was barren to Jacob. Hannah was barren before Samuel. And Elizabeth was barren before John the Baptist. Do you see? What does it mean? But that in human weakness, whether it be spiritual or our sorrow in the physical, in our humility of place and position is precisely where God is pleased to pour forth his immeasurable greatness and gifts upon us in Christ Jesus. Not by might, not by power, but by the Lord and his strength and his grace. This is the story of Abram. And it is the story of all who, like Abram, share in the same faith as Abram, which terminates on its same object, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father,